Hey folks, welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Christ Church at Grove Farm. Whether it's your first time or you've been here since the beginning, we are thrilled to be a part of your spiritual walk and look forward to all that Christ is doing in your life. If you are looking for more information about Christ Church or you would like to connect with one of our pastors or ministry leaders, you can reach us on our website, ccgf.org. You can also connect with us on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Here is this week's message. Grace and peace to you. I want to begin by giving you a report. We, we have ministry on Wednesday night that takes place. And this past Wednesday night was a great night for our kids and middle school ministries. Now, before I tell you this information, wait till I give you it all because you're going to want to clap. So be ready to clap. I'm going to give you the middle school and the kids information. It's amazing. So there were 71 middle schoolers. This is like a record night for us. 71 middle schoolers here this past Wednesday night. 11 of those were first-time guests who came result of the all-nighter we did a couple weeks ago for the first time, right? That was good. Not yet. Not yet. I told you. Not yet. Hold on, Tom. Easy. I told you. You're going to want to clap. I'm glad you're excited. More than that, there were eight middle schoolers who surrendered their life to Jesus Christ for the first time. Wait, I got more. Okay, kids ministry. There were 161 kids here on Wednesday night. Again, record numbers. There were 21 first-time guests here in the kids ministry on Wednesday night. And, wait for it, there were 17 kids who gave their life to Jesus Christ. I think we should clap now, don't you? It was amazing. (laughs) I'll tell you what, I really sense, and, and it's not just at Christ Church, God's, God's at work beyond our body. But when we look at Christ Church, the Lord is doing something here. And it's a really exciting time. And I, I hope that you will be compelled to pray and to share and to grow in Christ because of what we see. And you know, we don't pound our chest with this stuff. This isn't about us, and look at all the kids that came out here. No, no. When humility, we worship God in light of what he's doing in our midst, right? So it's powerful. Let's do that right now. Let's pray and celebrate and just thank God for what we're seeing, early signs of growth and renewal. Oh, Father, we do come before you and we give you praise for what took place this past Wednesday night. We're in awe of it because we know we can't manufacture that, Lord. We can't manufacture life change. We know, Lord, it only happens by your hand and by your grace. And so we thank you for sending first-time guests to middle school and to kids and to church. We thank you, Lord, for touching their life with the gospel and giving them receptive hearts to respond. And we pray, God, for more. More in this body, more across the city, more across the nation. We give ourselves to that end, Lord. And we pray that even this morning, as we look at your word, that you would teach us how we can be a part of your kingdom-building work in these days. Thank you, God. We love you. We praise you. We worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I got a picture I want to show you here, a graphic. This comes from Barna, and and it's going to show you some data that will give you a sense of where we are in America in terms of Christian faith. Now, there are three lines there. Now, you can't see a lot of the numbers, and and maybe it's a little bit blurry for you, but I'll try to explain this the best I can. There's a red line, a blue line, and kind of a yellow-orange line. The red line represents people who are considered to be practicing Christians during the course of the past 20 years, from the year 2000 up to 2020, okay? And what you see there, if you look at that red line, is that the number of people who consider themselves to be practicing Christians has gone down considerably over the last 20 years. Imagine if we went back, you know, to 1950 or something like that. 
Now, the blue line are people who would say that they are non-practicing Christians. I take that to mean that these are people who would say they believe in God, but they, 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 they've kind of given up on church. They haven't given up on God, but they've given up on the church. They're non-practicing Christians. And so that number, as you can see, has actually increased pretty significantly during that same 20-year time span. Well, then there's the, the yellow-orange line, and that line represents people who would say, I'm not a Christian. I'm not into faith. And again, you see the trend. That number is increasing. I wonder where you might find yourself on that graph, if you're like honest in your own mind. If you would say, well, I'm, a I'm, a, I'm someone who follows Christ. I'm practicing. I'm a practicing Christian. Or maybe you say, you know, I'm kind of in that like non-practicing thing. I'm here today or I'm watching online, worshiping online today, but, but I'm not really into it. It's not part of my regular life. Maybe you'd say, someone dragged me here, someone made me watch this with them, and I'm, I'm not a Christian at all. I wonder where you find yourself. You know, if you look at that data, ultimately what you see is this. 25% of the American population, or thereabout, are practicing Christians, people who are following Jesus. That means that three quarters of our population is not. Now, historically, <clears throat> Christians would refer to that 75% as people who are lost. And there's a biblical precedence for that, that term, that phrase, the lost. And the lost refers to people who are living a life, walking about without God. People who are lost in sin. I think we all can relate to that. That's what we talk about when we talk about the lost. And there is a biblical precedence for it, but I want to challenge the use of that term today because I think a lot of times when we use the term the lost, it can come off as arrogant, and I'm talking to Christians, it can come off as arrogant or condescending. You know what I mean? And when we say the lost, it's like somehow we've got our act together and then there's all these other people who need to get their act together. And I think if we're real with ourselves and we're honest, we, we would know that we're all lost to a certain extent in a certain way, right? Again, there, there is a biblical precedence to the word lost. And though I want to challenge it, I want to point this out to you too. In one of the most famous chapters of all of Scripture, Luke 15. By the way, you should go back and read that this week. It talks about the lost. And Jesus talks about the lost through three parables or three stories. There's the story of the lost sheep. There's the story of the lost son. There's the story of the lost coin. And all three of those, those stories kind of have a common lesson. And, and what the lesson is, just in a really simple way, is this. Is that being lost means that God comes to find you. That's kind of the point of Luke 15. Being lost means God comes to find you. Some of you would say, amen. That's my story. God came to find me. I once was lost, but now I'm found by the grace of God. And it wasn't because I figured it out. Here's what I also would say about Luke 15. You know, challenging the use of the way we use the word lost. Lost, if you look at Luke 15, means loved. Jesus loves the lost. There's no condensation. No arrogance. No, Jesus loves the lost, and so he goes after the lost, right? We've got a challenge when we use that. I'll tell you this. The Bible tells us about the lost and how the lost are found. 
what the Bible does. And I would say this, if we're going to be people who lovingly seek those, like Jesus, who are lost in our city, in our nation, in our world, then we have to be people of the word. Now we got so much access to the Bible, we're going to talk about that, but we got to be in the word. If we're really serious about the lost, and we want to be like Jesus and lovingly seek people who are lost, then we've got to be in the word of God. But I think that requires us and gives us the opportunity to, to get real about our struggle with being in the Bible. I mean, it's always one thing to talk about something, but another thing actually to do it. And, and I think that the truth is this, we struggle with the Bible. I mean, again, real moment here. Let's be real. Be real with yourself. Be real before God. Do you struggle to, to not be distracted when you read the Bible? Do you find that being your story? Like I sit down and I try to read the Bible and my mind's going all over the place. I'm struggling. Do you find it difficult to, to, to understand the Bible? Do you struggle to understand the scriptures? Have you tried to read it and you get discouraged? Because like, I don't know what this means. You ever been in that spot? Do you struggle? Here's, let's get really honest here. Do you struggle to want to read the Bible? Do you find yourself saying, no, I'd rather be on Facebook or whatever it might be, whatever your hobby is, whatever you're into, whatever distraction you like, do you find yourself, you know, really, if I'm honest, sometimes I don't even want to read the Bible. I think if we're going to be serious about reaching the lost, we got to get back to the Word, and that requires us to examine ourselves and say, okay, to what degree am I struggling with reading the Bible? I'll tell you this, if you desire to see the lost found, like Jesus, if you feel lost yourself, then it is time to rediscover the scriptures, to rediscover the Bible. And that is exactly what happens in the narrative that we're going to be looking at today from 2 Kings 22. So if you got your Bible, go there. Jeremiah's already introduced this for us. Thank you, Jeremiah, for leading us in worship. And we've read verses 1 and 2, and we've heard about this guy named Josiah, as we continue in our series, Ordinary Radicals, this is the, the last installment of this series. Let's look at Josiah. Let's talk about him. I'm going to pick up now in 2 Kings 22, verse 3. In the 18th year of his reign, King Josiah sent the secretary, Shaphan, son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, to the temple of the Lord. He said, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, and have him get ready the money that has been brought into the temple of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have collected from the people. Have them entrusted to the men appointed to supervise the work of the temple. And have these men pay the workers who repair the temple of the Lord. The carpenters, the builders, and the masons also have them purchase timber and dress stone to repair the temple. So what we're looking at here is background, okay? Background to Josiah, background to what's going on, and what we're really going to be looking at, the main part of the text for today. And we're talking about, of course, Josiah, who is a king. And Josiah, as we read in verses 1 and 2, was a good king. Look at verse 2. He was a good king like David. If you know the history of the kings of Israel, the, the kings of Judah, you know this is a unique thing. That Josiah was a good king, weren't many of those, or a lot of bad kings. He was a good one like David. I do want to point this out. You know, this series is Ordinary Radicals. Let's be honest, he is not so ordinary. He's a king after all. 
but he is radical. He's more radical than he's ordinary. And there's an example that we're going to follow today. And, and what we're looking at here, this little description of what's happening in the temple. He's rebuilding the temple, by the way. He's restoring the temple. This is a turning point in the reign of Josiah. It's important. He is restoring the temple. It's been put on his heart to do this. It's a turning point in his life. Now, he's restoring the temple, getting the carpenters and the masons and all these people to work on it and collecting the money to, to, to finish the job. But he's not doing it for aesthetic purposes. This wasn't a situation where their carpeting was outdated or the drapes needed to be replaced because they were moth-eaten or something like that. No, this is not done for aesthetic purposes. The reason he's restoring the temple is so that the people would once again worship the Lord. Because here's what's happening in Israel at this time. If you look at their blue lines and their yellow-orange lines and their red lines, they're a lot like ours. They got people who don't identify as faithful anymore. Those lines are going up. And then the people are faithful, that number is dwindling. Just like our times. The people of God had turned away from God. They were working away from him. And so his idea is this. He says, you know what? The people need to worship God again. Their blue line, non-practicing people, it's going up. Their yellow-orange line, the people of no faith, it's going up. They have the lost, so to speak, in their midst. And what did he do? Did he wring his hands? Oh no, I'm going to complain about this. And the, when the world's going to, to, to hell in a handbasket, is that what he did? No, he didn't wring his hands and complain about it. Did he sit on his hands? Did he say, well, I'm just going just gonna to wait it out. We're going to isolate ourselves. And, and the few people who want to worship God will do that. Everyone else, they can just go do whatever they want. No, he didn't sit on his hands. He didn't wring his hands. He lifted his hands. Josiah lifted his hands. I love this. He lifted his hands because he knew that God was real. He knew God was real. He had experienced his presence. And he knew that the people needed to also experience God's presence, to be touched by his presence. Because they'd never be the same if they worshiped God and they felt his presence. You know, there's something that I would say that transpires in worship. Josiah knew this. The word I'd use to describe it is awakening. There's an awakening that happens in worship. Brad and Anna and Michael and, and all the team this morning led us in worship. There was a moment of awakening there, wasn't there? As we sang about what God's done, when we thank the master and we praise him, there was a sense of like awakening. And what happens is you come in here and you got this fog in your head and you're distracted thinking about this and thinking about that and the burdens you're carrying. And, and it recalibrates our spirit. When we worship God, it recalibrates our spirit. It jumpstarts our hearts. There's something that transpires in worship. Josiah knew this, so he was restoring the temple because he wanted the people to come together and have this awakening, something he could never manufacture. That what the people needed was to experience God. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this. I have a quote written down. He said, at home, in my own house, there is no warmth or vigor in me. But in the church, when the multitude, when the people are gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. There's an awakening that takes place in worship. Look, if you're lethargic, if you come in here lethargic today, 
Listen, the people of God were lethargic. That's what we're reading about in this background in 2 Kings 22. Don't stay away. The tendency is want to stay away when you're lethargic. No, lean in. When our hearts feel, when we feel at least, that's when we need God the most. We have to lean in. I love this from Psalm 73, 28. And we'll move on from this point. The psalmist says this. As for me, it was good to be near to God. Listen, what you need, if you're, if you're one of those blue line people, and I believe in God, but I don't really get engaged in the church, and I've kind of moved away from that. No, if you, you need to be near the Lord, it's good for you to be near the Lord. Come and worship. Look, there's an open invitation. If you're distant, if you've been struggling, if you've wandered away, come back. There's an opportunity. Don't come back for, for the church or for me. Come back for the Lord. It's good for you to be near God. And that's what Josiah knew. He knew this, and so he set about restoring the temple. That's what's happening here. You got the background? Restoring the temple, construction project going on. You can imagine all those things. And now, let's go to verse 8, and you'll see what happens. This is mind-blowing. Check it out. Listen closely. Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. Construction's going on. They blow it off like, what's this? It's the book of the law of the temple, okay? He gave it to Shaphan who read it. And then Shaphan, the secretary, went to the king and reported to him, hey, your officials have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the workers and the supervisors at the temple. In other words, the, the work is ongoing. The construction project, the restoration of the temple has begun. And then Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. He found something. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. And when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah the priest. Hakim, son of Shaphan. Akbor, son of Micaiah. Shaphan the secretary and Isaiah the king's attendant. Go and inquire of the Lord for me. And for the people and for all Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us. Because those who have gone before us have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. So here's what's happening, okay? There's this book of the law that's referenced here. The book of the law. The thing that they... Blew the dust off and they found this thing in the temple while they're doing this construction book. That book is the book of the Torah, right? The first five books of the Bible. This is the Hebrew Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This is the book of the covenant that tells the history of the people of Israel. Their relationship with God. The promises of God to them. And what's happened? They lost the book of the law, the Hebrew Bible. They lost the Bible in the temple. This is ridiculous. They lost the Bible. Do you hear that? They lost the Bible. I was getting really self-righteous about this. I was like indignant, like thinking, how do you lose the Bible in the church? How could this happen? How did this happen in the temple? And then I realized that I lost my Bible earlier this year for like months. I couldn't find it in the church. It was lost right here. I thought, so I thought one of you stole it. I was accusing people. Someone grabbed my Bible and took it home with them. Meanwhile, for like three months it was gone. Ed Shuley finally found it and brought it to me and said, I found this. <laughs> you might need it. 
Who am I to get so indignant, right? I mean, and here's the truth of the matter. It goes way deeper than that. I wonder to what degree we have lost the Bible in the modern church today. It sounds so silly, right? Let me show you another graph, uh, graphic. Check this out, okay? So this shows, very simple. Shows Bible reading in America today. If you go from left, the dark blue, to right, basically it shows people who read the Bible every day, 11%, all the way to people, big, the big number, the big bar, people who never read the Bible, okay? And so you basically have, you know, some people who read the Bible every day, there's 11% of those, and then there's some people who read it three or four times a week, and then there's people who read it once a week, and then you have people who never read it, read the Bible once a, once a year, maybe read it once every other month. And that's about 58% of the culture, 58% of the people, which is represented in the church, Okay. Huge issue. When I say, have you lost the Bible? I mean, I think the churches today are losing the Bible. And yeah, we do struggle to understand the Bible. And we do struggle to, to, to not be distracted when we read it. And then I think we struggle with even desiring, wanting to read the Bible at all. Let me ask you a very pointed question that maybe you write down. Maybe you think about today. Maybe you let eat at you a little bit. Have you lost the Bible. Let's, let's look at everyone else. How about you? Have you lost? They lost the Bible. And I'm not talking about like misplace your Bible and you can't find it. No, have you lost it in your life? That you really don't get into it. That you're, you're one of the people that's represented in the, the, the big bar there at the end that says, you know, I never really read the Bible. Look, if, if that's you, I'm not here to beat you over the head with that. I'm here to extend an opportunity. That what's lost can be found. That's the power of God. I've had so many people just this morning between services who've come up to me and said, you know, I grew up in a certain church and I never read the Bible. But I've started doing it this year or I'm starting to do it now. And it's changing my life. It's given me ways to share my faith with other people. That story's there for you too. And so look, if you're, if you're I'm not here to give you a guilt trip about being one of those people. It's like, yeah, I never read the Bible or I rarely read the Bible. There's an opportunity and that's what we want to talk about today. Here it was Josiah's response. Did you catch this part? He tore his robes. It sounds so weird. He tore his clothes. There's a biblical response and we see this often. It's a sign of repentance. When someone in the Bible tears their clothing off, it's a sign of repentance. It's not just a sign of remorse, by the way. It's a sign of repentance. Of someone saying, oh, I've sinned. We have sinned. I'm so angry, I'm going to strip down naked, I'm going to rip my clothes off, which is another sin, I guess, right? The tearing of the clothes, representing like this, this response of heart. And I love this about Josiah. Josiah didn't point the finger at other people. It's their fault. They're the ones that didn't. How did they lose this? He didn't get indignant and mad at everyone else. He didn't make excuses. He owned it. And he had a response of heart. He was tender. He was fearful of God. What is the state of your heart? As we talk about this question, we just kind of rest in this moment and we say, hey, have you lost the Bible? What's the response of your heart? I know this, Josiah, and we, have, we see the evidence. Josiah believed the scriptures. Josiah wanted to hear from the scriptures. You hungry? You hungry for the scriptures? You hungry for the word? Man, I'm telling you, it, there's goodness that comes from the word. Wrestle with this in your heart and mind. Because here's the thing I know. 
both Christian and non-Christian alike, are struggling to be in the Word. Let this meet you in the moment. Okay, let's keep on going, okay? So, so not only did Josiah have this like demonstrative response, the tearing of the robes, he's upset, and he makes his grand declaration. He didn't just put an act on. He actually went to action. He kicked into gear. Go to 2 Kings 23. We're going to just skip over a couple verses here. I hate to do that, but, but take you to 2 Kings 23, and you kind of pick up in the story, and you see what happens. He didn't just make this big show and this big fuss and yell and scream. No, he actually, he actually did something about it as a leader. He did something in his own life. Check it out. Uh, picking up in verse 1 of chapter 23. The king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests, the prophets, all the people, all the people, from least to greatest. And here's what he did. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant. They sat down. He said, we're going to have a little reading party. And he read to them the first five books of the Bible out loud. That's what they did. That was their response. And, and the king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commandments and statutes and decrees with all his heart and all his soul, thus confirming the words written of uh, the covenant written in this book. And then all the people, all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. I love this. What Josiah did as a response is he sparked reform in the church. There was a reform. There was like a new way. So we got to do something different here. We got to change our ways. I'll give a nod at this moment to, to Martin Luther. Today is October 31st. It is Reformation Day. Some of you are like, what's Reformation Day? Reformation Day is a day when we recall the reformation of the church that took place now 504 years ago. This changed the church forever. We stand on the shoulders of the reformers and Martin Luther. The church at that time, 500 plus years ago, was selling indulgences. You could go buy an indulgence from a priest for yourself, for the dead, and, and it was basically a way of releasing yourself from punishment due to sin. That's not the way sin's dealt with, by the way. You know that, hopefully. Not by paying some kind of penance. Was it a response? Luther stood up to the church and he wrote these 95 theses. And he called people in the church, the faithful, to take up the course of reform. Luther believed the power of a simple layperson armed with the scriptures. That's a quote from him. A simple layperson armed with the scriptures could, could do something powerful in the church. We need that again today. Josiah knew that the people of his time needed reform. The church needed reform. So Josiah, if you read the rest of 2 Kings 23, whew, you see this man set about some reform. There was Baal and Asherah. These are false gods. They were gone. He eliminated them. There's, there were idolatrous priests. There were idolatrous priests in the temple, serving Baal, serving Asherah. Gone. He did away with them. There was sexual immorality in the temple. Gone. The reform is kicking in. He smashed idols. He destroyed sites of idolatry. He restored the Passover. This is mind-blowing. The people of Israel had forsaken the Passover. How's that happen? That's what happens when you, you get away from God's word, when you move away from it, when you push it away. They'd, let, they'd forsaken the Passover. He reinstituted the Passover. All this reform happens. 
And yet, despite all this great reform and Josiah's faithful leadership and calling people back to God and the pledge that the people make themselves, despite all that, the people still, and you read for yourself, the people still suffered the consequences of their sin of forsaking God. I know it's really not the ending you want to hear. You say, really, that's the ending? I mean, why no great turnaround in the nation of Israel? A dr- they had a dramatic return to God. Why not a great turnaround? Doesn't God see their commitment to the law? I mean, they all pledged themselves, right? Let me ask you a question. How do you think that pledge went? To keep all God's commands. To keep all his decrees. How do you think they did with that? You ever make a pledge like that for yourself? I swear, I'm not going to drink anymore. No more late night ice cream. I'm done with that, right? Whatever, whatever it might be. How does that work out for you often? When you try to do that in your own strength. You can imagine what happened. And so people face the consequences. But let me tell you. Don't question God. If you're like, well, why would God, why would he go back to law and this is the way it ends? God was absolutely determined to rescue his people. You see, the story's not over. There's lots of Bible still left. There's lots of history of the people of Israel that remains. And just like the lost sheep, just like the lost coin, just like the lost son, God absolutely in his passion and his love will go after to rescue his people. That story is still resolving today and still continuing to this day. God is a rescuer and he does go after his people. But know this, there is no salvation, there is no rescue apart from Jesus. Hey, those Israelites, they couldn't keep up to their pledge. They, they couldn't keep the covenant. Not in a way that would please God. They couldn't keep the commandments in a way that would please God. Listen, you can't do it either. You can, you know it. You know you can't keep his commands. You know you can't keep his decrees. And so while we lean into God's word, while we have to be connected to it, while we've got to read it, we also will find this revealed to us through God's word that we are too deep in sin. That we can never measure up to God's holy standard. You can't sleep with a Bible under your neck. Osmosis won't do it. That doesn't work. Only Jesus saves. Only Jesus saves. Jesus is the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You know, Josiah had a turning point in his life. I wonder today, I believe today, that there's a turning point for some of you. That like Josiah or like some of the people who talked to me out in the Mitten Commons between services. That there's a turning point that's just waiting for you. That if you would say, you know what? It's time to get serious about the word of God. That, that hey, it's time to get serious about following Jesus. I need rescue. I need the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. If you would get serious about that. There's a turning point that's just waiting for you. I want to tell you, before we leave this text, my favorite part of this whole thing is this. Did you catch when Jeremiah read the text this morning? Josiah, the king, was eight years old when he became king. Nothing ordinary about that. That seems crazy. Eight years old when he became king. Sixteen years old. He committed himself to Jesus Christ, to, the, to, the, to God. He committed himself to God, to faith. 
And then now, we're reading today, as a 20-something, 10 years later, he's leading the nation in revival. This wasn't some old man. This is a 20-year-old. And he's leading the nation in this awakening, this renewal. And he was compelled to bring all people to God. He was lovingly seeking those who were lost. And he wanted to bring people before God to worship him and to be awakened. I love that. Here's what it says in, in 2 Kings 23 about Josiah. Look at verse 25. It says, neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his strength in accordance with all the law of Moses. <laughs> what a radical. What a radical. Not ordinary, but what a radical. I mean, this guy gave all of himself to the Lord. He turned himself. He had a turning point. I wonder this. What could God do with a person like you? What could God do in, in the city, in the nation, in the world? What could he do in your community? What could he do in your neighborhood? Hey, listen, what could he do in your school? Through a person who would say, you know what? I'm giving myself to the Lord. I am, I am holy. I'm turning to God. And I'm going to give myself to him just like Josiah did. What could God do with one person like that? I wonder, what could God do with 10 people like that? What could he do with 50? What could God do with 100 people who say, no, I'm committed to the word. I'm committed to Christ. I turn my life over to him. I wonder about that. I love that part of the story. So, you know, we, we talk about the lost. Well, God delights, delights in the lost being found. God delights in the lost being found. I believe that all of heaven must erupt for joy when someone for the first time sings out loud, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I have to believe that heaven just jumps for joy at that. And for some of you, I really believe this. Today is that turning point. Josiah had a turning point. There's a turning point for you today and it's right there. And, and that turning point is a time when that becomes your song. I once was lost, but now I'm found. It's your chance to say, I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It's your way of saying, God, I need rescued. I need rescued, and I could never do it on my own because of my sin. And so I would invite you today, if, that's your, if it's your turning point moment, if you feel God nudging your, you that way, listen, pray that Bible verse, John 14, 6, jot it down. Pray and say, God, I, I need rescued. And I believe that Jesus is the way the truth, and the life. I'm lost, God. Come and rescue me. Come and find me, God. I want to be found in Jesus. I'll tell you this. Our prayer and care team is going to be in the back of the room there. When we sing this last song in a moment, take a step and go back there. Listen, this is your turning point. Go to God, go to God by prayer through this team and say, God, rescue me. I believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. The team's assembling there now. And, and don't be embarrassed. Don't think, well, what's someone going to think if they see me? No, no. We'll celebrate. What will we think? We'll say, oh man, God's rescuing people. The lost are being found. You take that step. They'll pray for you in any way. You need, you need prayer for a sickness, a loved one, whatever it might be. That team would love to pray for you. That might be your action step. 
I'll give you another really tangible action step. When we talk about the, the, the Bible, sharing how the lost are found, well, listen, you can find what you're looking for, what's been lost in the scriptures. Josiah learned that. It might be time for you to rediscover the Bible. We have free copies of the Bible. We would love to give you one. If you don't have a Bible, our gift to you today. Go back to the, the table. We'd love to give you a Bible. But there's so many other resources. Like there's a million different expressions of God's word. There's children's Bibles. I love this one, the Jesus Storybook Bible. It'd be a great one for you to read with your kids. There's the life-focused New Testament that we've had around here at Christ Church for a long time. You can read through the New Testament, devotional style, one day at a time, one year's time. We'd love to get you one of these. If you're into something more, um, more academic, there's the harmony of the Gospels. Where Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are, are laid out chronologically. And you can read them side by side. This is powerful. The life of Jesus. Or if you're looking for a devotional of sorts, we have a, a modern expression of the Book of Common Prayer. This one says, a liturgy for ordinary radicals. I love that. You can pick one of these up out there as well. We have these resources. Get into the Word of God. That's the point. You can go on version, and you can find reading plans. It's time to rediscover the, the Bible. And here's what will happen. You'll be reawakened. God will begin to put in you a greater love and a greater passion for those who don't know Jesus. For those, as we would say, who are lost. Listen. If you struggle with the Bible, if you say, man, I don't understand it, or, or I get distracted, or, or, or I just don't even have the desire sometimes. If I'm really honest, I don't really want to read the Bible that much. If that's you, I want to give you one last thing, and that's a Bible verse. And I believe this Bible verse, I've been doing this all week long personally, will be a help to you if you'll go to God with it. The verse is Psalm 119.36. And I'm going to share, with it, uh, with, share it with you with the ESV translation. And I want to point you especially to the first part of this. Here's what that scripture says. It says, incline my heart to your testimonies. In other words, God, make my heart desire what it doesn't desire naturally. God, incline my heart to your word. Incline my heart to the Bible. In other words, God, push my will by your power. To have love for your word. Cause me to want to read it. Because really if I'm being honest, I don't want to read it. God, incline my heart. This is a prayer for divine influence to want to do what you don't want to do. So maybe that's your thing this week. Maybe you say, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to memorize Psalm 119.36. And before I go to a time of prayer with these resources, I'm going to say, God, incline my heart to your word. Make me want what I don't want by your power. What's it going to be? You're going to go back to prayer? You're going to get into God's word? You're going to say, God, incline my heart to want what I don't want. Take that initiative. And here's what will be the, the fruit of it. It will produce in us a love for God and a love for his people. May the lost be found. In Jesus' name, amen.